But before we get to that, let's head over to Boston, Massachusetts, and Celeste Katz-Marston. Celeste, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. Look, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, We will sort of talk about one of the things that uh, President Biden talked about with the State of the Union uh, the other day. But have you ever heard a State of the Union uh, uh, address where the President did not say that the state of this union is strong. And everyone, ooh, stands up and claps. Like, there is a pandemic where a million people in the US have died. There's a war on. There's division like you've never seen, perhaps, in politics. And yet, oh, the state of the union is strong. Infrastructure is falling apart. Is the state of the union strong? I don't think it is. I think the state of the union uh, address is not necessarily meant to be uh, that sort of specific. Mm. I think that uh, I was I was discussing this with my husband the other night and having listened to many State of the Union speeches, um, basically what I feel like is it's a chance for the president to let the country overhear the things he needs to say to Congress. Yes, It's sort of he needs to call the lawmakers in this country on the carpet. He has them a sort of captive audience in one room and they can stand or sit or applaud or not applaud or make faces as they want. But the president is almost not speaking directly to the people all the time. He's speaking to the lawmakers who are going to help him or hinder him in enacting the policies he wants to get done. Do you think that, yes, they're allowed to stand up and cheer or sit down and sit on their hands or grimace or whatever? Are they allowed to heckle the president, do you think? I think it's considered uh, atrociously rude. I mean, we do have freedom of speech, you know, uh, protected in our Constitution and the First Amendment. And you and I have talked about that on this program. But I think it's considered very poor form. I think there are other uh, fora for people to criticize the president, pretty much all of them. And yeah, they can. But is it considered uh, mannerly or respectful of the office, if not of the person occupying the office? I would say it is not particularly respectful to the presidency itself. So that did happen, though, a couple of times from a couple of Republicans. It's happened in the past where President Obama was heckled as well by being called a liar, again by a Republican. The Democrats tend not to do that. Although, you know, when President Trump uh, presented one of his states of the union, uh, Nancy Pelosi gave him a bit of an ironic clap, didn't she? So I suppose it goes both ways, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that with Nancy Pelosi, the very memorably, she had a couple of responses to Trump speaking. One of them was the the sort of slow clap, as you call it. Uh, and then at the end of the address, I believe she had a printed copy, yeah. what we believe to be a printed copy of the text, which she very uh, sort of ostentatiously yeah. ripped up for ridiculous. the cameras. Yeah, well, I mean, which is you know, yeah. as you say, it is. It can be a bipartisan thing, being disrespectful of the office, if not of the officer. Okay, so one of the things that the president did talk about was how they're going to look at COVID now, and something that all governments have basically come to terms with, and that well, they have to realise is that we're living with it now. There might have been efforts to eliminate it before. But that's not going to happen. We're just going to have to live, in, live with it as an endemic thing rather than a pandemic thing. What has the president suggested? 
Now, one of the things that he mentioned during the speech, as you say, is, is that we he said that we don't want to just accept that COVID is with us, that we are going to keep fighting, that we'll never stop attempting to vaccinate more and more Americans. I think we're a little over 60 percent uh, vaccination rate uh, in the United States right now, still working on getting more people vaccinated, talking about vaccines for younger and younger kids. But what we're talking about is sort of not uh, accepting a situation where we're locked in our homes, where we have to continue to avoid doing the things that are part of our normal lives, that are enjoyable, that are necessary, like having kids in schools. So he's really talking about and trying to make adjustments so that if people do get sick, which they will, they can be treated. For example, uh, people who test positive uh, through a pharmacy can immediately get prescription medication, antiviral medication to treat their symptoms so that they can go on with their lives uh, as opposed to you know, sort of having people quarantine endlessly, um, increasing testing capacity so that we can get those kinds of medications out to people, um, taking measures to make sure that kids stay physically in schools, which has been a very big deal, I'm sure, in uh, in all over the world, it as did. well as in the United States. So uh, that kind of thing. So he's not really sort of admitting as much openly that this is the way we're going to live. He has to give that sort of line of we'll never stop fighting to defeat the virus. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, the, the basic outcome of everything uh, that's going on or the basic direction is we will have to live with it. And here's how. So one of the things the president did talk about a lot, though, uh, in the address was the price of medication. And he placed the blame squarely at the feet of the uh, big drug companies, big pharma, as they call it. So in Australia, in America, rather, everything is kind of a lot cheaper than in Australia. At least clothes are cheaper, kind of food is cheaper, books and magazines are cheaper, all that sort of thing's cheaper. Going to the movies is probably cheaper as well. But medication is not. Um, now, I don't know, we have a thing called the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme where the government often pays a lot of the of, of what the medication costs. And so... People are not weighed down with these really uh, uh, overwhelming charges for just basic medication. Why doesn't that happen in America? Why is it so much cheaper in Canada, where I presume they might have a similar scheme? Why doesn't the, the U.S. government do something about it? Well, it's obviously something that's going to, it sends people broke. Yeah, it's prescription medication and, and healthcare costs generally are a huge issue and have been a huge issue in the United States for a very long time. There are people who are, of course, wary of a single payer system of the government having too much control or what they believe to be too much control over people's healthcare choices. You saw this in certainly in presidential elections past and debates past where people were talking about if the government controls who gets healthcare and when and how much will there be these quote unquote death panels that will decide who lives and who dies. But um, the fact remains that the United States government has uh, extraordinary purchasing power. And so we do have a, a competitive system, a market system here um, when it comes to healthcare. But as we've seen with things like um, antiviral drugs and vaccination, when the government chooses to exercise that power, albeit in an emergency situation, it does make a difference. People can get drugs at greatly reduced costs or free. They can get medical supplies and devices for free or at uh, very little cost. So I think it's sort of a it's sort of a philosophical issue that the United States seems to be having 
uh, a problem with uh, in terms of people being willing to accept the government administrating everything. And, you know, at the same time, the government does administrate certain health related or health insurance related programs in the United States, two of them uh, that you may know of Medicaid, which is for uh, people who are uh, indigent um, and Medicare, which is for people who are older. And some of those systems are incredibly convoluted, have a lot of problems and don't give people everything that they need. So, um, you know, remember in a country of over three 300 million people, um, this is a, a pretty tall order. So it, it does get complicated. Yeah, although I know that if uh, someone is sick and they go to a hospital in Australia, it costs them nothing. And that, you know, not going to happen in the US, is it? He blamed the paying uh, you know, uh, lobbyists, uh, the, the big pharma companies uh, paying lobbyists uh, who then uh, give all that money to um, the members of Congress, but who also set up bonuses to executives as well. I mean, if those sorts of things stopped, then people would be able to afford this medication, wouldn't they? I mean, look, this is, again, a function of a market economy. We have, a, a in many cases, for-profit healthcare companies. They are there to provide a service, but they are there to provide a service at a profit to themselves. And there's no way of, of getting around that. So yeah, people are going to expect these this kind of compensation. That cost is going to be passed down to consumers. And so, you know, that that is something that is not going away immediately. It's something that's going to take a long time to unwind. All righty. Now, uh, there is a committee in uh, Congress looking at the insurrection on January the 6th last year. And it's, you know, gradually gathering evidence from all sorts of people. Some people want to give evidence, some people don't. Uh, now they've looked at this, uh, some emails from a uh, lawyer called John Eastman. Uh, what's, what have they found there? Yeah, this is a really big deal. So there is this conservative attorney, as you mentioned, John Eastman, uh, who was representing or working with former President Donald Trump at the time of the insurrection, at the time of the uh, the counting of uh, ballots, the counting of, of votes that would lead to the Electoral College vote, uh, which is how we actually pick the president in the United States, and then uh, the certification of, of that Electoral College count. So basically what... Uh, what this panel is after is finding out more about these emails, getting more of these emails to find out if there was what they call uh, potentially a criminal conspiracy to defraud the United States by uh, obstructing this congressional proceeding, which is the counting of the electoral votes. And this is a really big deal. This is not necessarily a sign that uh, former President Donald Trump is going to go to jail or that people around him is going to, are going to go to jail because this is a, a civil investigation, but it could put some pressure on the Department of Justice to take further action against the president and his, uh, and his allies. Uh, if this turns out to be true, if there is evidence, written evidence, especially in these in these emails, that they undertook this, you know, it's very sad to use the word in the context of American government, but a plot to overturn yeah. the, the outcome of a legitimate election. But hang on, I mean, President Trump made no secret of the fact that he wanted to overturn the election. He, he said it long before... Uh, the election took place. He said it on the day of the election. He said it after the election. He said it all the way up until the, the swearing in of President Biden. So there's no secret in the fact that he wanted to overturn. He was calling people in Georgia, uh, getting them to, asking them to find votes for him. So 
that's not illegal. It's when you ask somebody else to help you that it becomes illegal. Is that right? Well, in in this case, it's one thing to uh, give a speech or something which matters, especially when you have the platform of the presidency uh, to say something like this election was rigged or uh, they're not counting your votes or Joe Biden isn't the legitimate president elect. But this is something uh, very specific where there was forethought where there was planning basically to try to put this pressure on at the time president uh, vice president mike pence to reject the uh outcomes uh, um the the choices of the electors from different states and replace those electors in the electoral college with uh people who were friendly to trump so this is this is not just going out there and and yelling things or saying things that are patently not true which is damaging to democracy, no question about it. But this is an actual, um, you know, thought out, multi-step, multi-state plan uh, to set up these alternate slates of electors and then pressure Mike Pence to listen to those people instead of the people who were legitimately granted the authority to serve as electors for the state. So could, I mean, look, if this ever gets as far as going to court, could an ex-president go to jail and could it happen when he's running for president well you know it's 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 really interesting the the whole idea of how much um you know how much insulation the uh, a president or a former president has from being prosecuted for crimes and i'm i'm not an, an expert a legal expert on this but i think that the president generally has pretty wide privilege they also have executive privilege which he has tried to exercise in many cases to hold back information that he feels is is not to be made public so uh in this case again this house panel specifically would not have the authority uh and in the case of these emails and this lawyer this is sort of one part of a a much bigger picture. So again, this is, does not necessarily lead to him going directly no. to jail, not collecting $200 or whatever mm. it is. But that's for when he's president. If you're an ex-president, do you still have that privilege? Well, I think that's what they're trying to figure out is how far the executive privilege actually goes. Mm, and certainly okay. we have seen things where, you know, they've gone after Trump, for example, for walking away with boxes of documents that belong in the National Archives. Like, that's not okay. As a former president, he doesn't get to hold on to that stuff. So there are limits to his power. Okay, Celeste is with us in Boston. Now, one of the other things that President uh, Trump talked, uh, President Trump, President Biden talked about (laughs) in the State of the Union was about social media and specifically something like um, advertising towards children on social media. Now, the genie is out of the bottle when it comes to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and, and things like that. But TikTok is still relatively new. They still think that they might be able to do something with that. Is that right? Yeah. So there's a there's this multi-state investigation now. Uh, attorneys general, including the attorney general of Massachusetts, who are investigating pardon me, who are investigating the effect that TikTok has on young children, their physical health, their mental health, their self-esteem, general well-being. And this is something you and I have talked about in terms of uh, Instagram, for example. Other platforms are being investigated in this way, and now that's extended out to TikTok because um, all of these things cumulatively can have a really bad effect, according to this research, according to these advocates, uh, on how kids feel about themselves, how kids feel about other people. Um, one thing that we've seen actually 
uh, ramping up quite a bit is uh, people making threats like bomb threats or mass shooting threats mm. against schools via TikTok. Uh, specifically, it's it's um, you know these the popularity of these different media platforms, social platforms goes in waves, and TikTok happens to be really hot right now. So you know the way people interact, especially I would think uh, during a pandemic uh, when people were isolated, particularly not able to see each other physically interact in a normal social way, um, has brought a lot of attention to to the fact that some of these things, uh, you know. Certainly people can express themselves. They do have some positive attributes, but they can also be quite dangerous to how kids feel about themselves and about other people. So where does freedom of speech fit in with this? Well, that's interesting. People say, well, I can say whatever I want or do whatever I want. And again, um, that may be true in certain contexts, like going to your local park and uh, you know campaigning against uh I don't know, fossil fuels or something like that. But if you are participating through a social media platform that is a private company with terms of service that has rules for how you engage and rules for membership. And yeah, I don't think you, you know, automatically have a first amendment right to say or do whatever you want to say. Now, does the company have a first amendment right to provide a platform for people to do or say whatever they want to do? Again, I think the first amendment um, is, is very much aware of the fact that liberty extends to the point where it doesn't harm the liberty of others. Let us conclude this morning or this afternoon for you, or this morning, I think for you with now rats. Okay. I mean, they're everywhere. We don't like to see them. They are more prominent in some areas than others. I don't know how prominent they are in Massachusetts. But there's all sorts of ways that people want to get rid of rats. What is happening? This is in Somerville, is it? Yeah, Somerville is is right outside of, of Boston. It's it's almost not even a, a suburb. It's more like a like a a borough of, of right. New York City, if you want to think of it that way. But yeah, rats are definitely here in Massachusetts. They're in, <clears throat> again, pardon me, it's, uh, they're in, in Boston, certainly, and they're in the, the metro areas. And so uh, Somerville, what they've decided to do is put out these, it's hard to even describe it, they're calling them electro death boxes. Uh, yeah, that's really going <laughs> to catch on, isn't it? <laughs> electro death boxes. But basically what it is, is it's essentially a, a smarter rat trap. So the rat goes into the box, the box senses that the rat is in there, kills it with an electric current, and then moves it into a separate closed container and automatically resets. Hmm. So the idea is that it's continuous protection without um, traps that other people, that people yes. or pets can access. It's not poison. Um, you know, hang on, so hang on. Is it only big enough for a rat to get in? What if a cat or a dog got in? Yeah, I think that the, the, the access point on these things, and I've seen poison bait traps which are like boxes essentially um on the street in boston and so on but the entrance is very small like i have a, a smaller dog i have a dachshund and my dog could not get into that right, box okay. which is good yeah. <laughs> so this is like the uh, electric chair for rats yeah it, it basically is and i think somerville claims to be the the second city in the united states after portland maine to actually put out these electro death boxes. So I guess it's kind of a pilot project for Massachusetts. They've got to have a better name. Rat catchers, well, they, Pied Piper or something. I don't know. But uh, electro death boxes, not. I mean, it does tell you what's going on and that might warn the rats themselves and it might warn people to stay away from them. What, I mean, what if somebody put their hand in one of these things? Would that do them damage? 
Well, I sort of hope that they wouldn't put their hand oh, come in on. there. You I know hope. somebody's uh, going to. Well, people will always do something. People mm. will always engage in some mad behavior that they, they shouldn't. But they do. The brand name for the thing, I believe, is called a smart box, which sounds better than electro death box. Mm. But yeah, I I think that the... Uh, like everything else that you try to do to stop the rats, the rats at some point will figure this thing out. Of course. <laughs> and, then, and uh, you know, Stay shop somewhere else. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, how bad is uh, is the rat problem in uh, Boston, for example? It's a it's a legitimate problem. And, and I think it became particularly bad during the um, uh, during the pandemic yeah. when you had garbage piling up, when, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cleaning services were disrupted. I mean, these that having lived in, in New York City for a very long time, like I have seen rats and they know what's up. If you've ever seen rats <laughs> scramble off a subway track like way before, like that's how you tell when the trains are coming, by the way, yeah. you see those rats start to move and you're like, I don't see any train. And then like a minute later, two minutes later, it comes. So they they know what's up, rats. I, I mean, love, they're gross. Yeah, they <laughs> are. Um, I will say I love Portland, Maine. I'd be interested to know whether it's worked there. I don't know if you've spent any time in Portland, Maine, but it really is a beautiful city. And uh, right on the water and you catch the ferry across to this island, which is also really fantastic. It's a beautiful place to, to visit. Uh, and they have a great donut shop in Portland, Maine. So strongly advise you. If you haven't been there, you must have. I mean, you're in Boston now. You must have uh, driven up to, to Maine at some point, have you? Sure. Since the time we were little kids, there that was go. one of the places that we would drive up to vacation. But the donut shop, I'll have to look that one up. Yeah, they have a very nice donut shop. All righty, Celeste, thank you very much for that. We will chat again in a couple of weeks. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Celeste Katz-Marston in Boston, Massachusetts.